football, baseball, basketball, anything sports. Auburn's 91.1 FM WEGL presents the scoreboard with your co-hosts, Bay Marks and Jacob Hillman. Your calls are welcomed at 334-844-9345 or follow them on Twitter at Jacob underscore Hillman 3 or at Bay underscore Marks. Now, let's take a look at the scoreboard with Bay and Jacob. Welcome to the scoreboard, WEGL 91.1 FM. Or if you're streaming on WeagleFM.com, we welcome you back to another edition of the scoreboard with Bay Marks as alongside Jacob Hillman on Masters Thursday. Masters are getting kicked off today in Augusta, Georgia. We have a lot to talk about on today's show. If you want to call in and be a part of the show, feel more than welcome. 334-844-9345. 334-844-9345. But before we get started with today's show, what makes sports so great? especially in collegiate sports, are the fans. And this past week, college sports and the SEC in more particular and the University of Alabama lost one of the most passionate fans that we've seen in a very long time. Uh, somebody that was personal to Jacob and very personal to the University of Alabama, uh, Luke Ratcliffe. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Jacob. Yeah, mic on. <laughs> yeah, Luke Ratcliffe. He, he was called Fluffopotamus on Twitter. That was his Twitter at. Big, big following on Twitter from Alabama Twitter and – really kind of college basketball and Auburn Twitter as well, just because of the way he interacted with fans. He was a funny guy on Twitter. And obviously his coming out party was our senior year in high school, his freshman year in college, when Auburn had the FBI stuff going on. He wore that FBI jacket to the Auburn gang. Obviously that probably frustrated some Auburn fans, but that's part of the rivalry. Right. And you're looking back on it, it's pretty funny. And I could probably say that I was probably very mad about it when he did wear it uh, during that game. But point being, he was one of those. He was the Crimson Chaos. He is what has really made this Alabama student section what it is. And obviously, this year you didn't really get to see it because of COVID. But I really think that he's done a great job at, you know, getting Alabama basketball fans excited because he's someone that, as you said, personally I know him because he. Quick story during the Auburn Alabama game this year. Uh, it's a game that. I wasn't able to win the lottery too, but the night before when I heard the Sharif rumors and everything, I said, all right, I'm buying tickets. So I bought tickets on StubHub, and they happened to be in the Alabama player guest section, like around there, and I I believe he sat in the top of my section. He came down to the middle of the game, and he talked to me and my buddy Jacob Patterson, who uh, we were were cheering throughout the game and stuff, and he just told us, like, I love y'all's passion. This isn't even a halftime. I'm pretty sure this was a media timeout. But he came down, and he he just felt like, he should come tell us and compliment us on the passion we showed, just us consistently cheering on our team and stuff. And I can say the same thing about him. Everyone's seen that on broadcast. If you've ever been to an Alabama game, you see him leading the charge of the Alabama student section. And and, and one of our good friends, Blake Bullock, has also become friends with him. Condolences to him as well because because I know him, but you know I wasn't close to him. I interacted with him on social media. I've talked to him in person a few times, but I wasn't as close as Blake was. And it's one of those things. It's just a, it's a tragic loss. And what else? What I'll end it with is in his 23 years of life, he made a huge impact. And and him knowing and seeing the love he's received, looking down, I, I know he appreciates it. And I know that that's what he wants is the love that everyone has shown from both sides, from all sides. You see Bruce Pearl tweet about it. Of course, the entire Alabama community, Nick Saban sent his condolences in his press conference yesterday. You saw reporter John Rothstein 
And, and that's someone that, that Luke loved. He always tweeted those quotes and stuff, and Rothstein tweeted I think he's him. the one that got uh, Rothstein to start tweeting my cousin Vinny. Yeah, and it's one of those things that seeing those kind of things, seeing the impact he made, it, it, it's incredible, especially in just his short life that, as I said, cut too short. But condolences to his family, condolences to the Alabama family, and, and anyone that knew him. Absolutely. You, you said it best. I couldn't put it any better myself. Um, way too soon. Such a promising young life that he had ahead of him. Um, and like you said, regardless of what the fan base is, he was passionate and he was all and the big thing with him was he was always respectable or respectful. Um, I mean, he game recognized game. I mean, he knew that Auburn and Alabama well, were building something. It, special. It's funny. The first thing he came down so post game in that Alabama game, the first thing he came down and said Man, I hope Sharif goes pro. Yeah. Because he was excited because he had never seen Alabama win in Auburn Arena. But when he came and talked to me, he was just like, that kid is good. Yeah. I mean, and that's what he was, that's what he wanted to talk to me about. To show you how much he meant to that basketball team, they gave him a piece of the championship net. So just keep that in mind. And they better rename that student section after. It'd be him. cool if they named it the fluff. You know, I kinda like that. That'd be cool. Because you know, they're saying like the camera Luke Ratless student section, but I kinda I kinda like, like the, the fluff. fluff. Yeah. That's I like cool. that. But like we said, rest in peace to Luke, a life taken way too soon. Um and condolences to his family in that hard time they're going through. But moving on. To his favorite sport. To his favorite sport, college basketball. The final four this past weekend in the national championship Monday night. We'll break it down in today's first segment. Going up with the first game on Saturday, Baylor and Houston. I, I, I think a lot of people predicted this game to be a lot closer than it ended up being. Baylor runs away with it, 78-59, to um, led by Jared Butler and company. I mean, Houston was a team that we had talked about was an underrated two-seed. Somehow they won their region, and it kind of showed why we thought they were not as strong of a two-seed as we originally would have thought. Yeah, and I think we also saw on Monday night that we, we, we could have expected this because Baylor is clearly a dominant team, and I won't say that Houston is clearly the, the, the overrated two-seed, but they're not quite as good as they're rated. Right. That, that is overrated, but... I, mean, I don't think they should be like a five seed or anything. Like a low two seed to to a three seed is probably about the right range for them. And whenever you're facing this Baylor team, good luck because yeah. I mean they shot nearly fifty percent from the three. You can't stop that. No, you can't. I mean, when you're as good of a defensive team as you are, and you shoot fifty percent from the three and fifty three percent from the field, you're not gonna, you know, beat a lot of teams that are shooting that well. And then Houston just we knew that they were a fast transition team. They only had two guys scoring double digits, so well, they that's also, not going to get it done. See, and another thing is Baylor miss, makes 50% of their shots. They still grab 13 offensive rebounds. Exactly. When you're grabbing 13 offensive rebounds and you're still making 50% of your shots, what are you going to do on the opposition? Nothing. Now looking to the other Final Four game. Woo! Possibly one of the greatest Final Four games we've ever seen. UCLA, from the first four to the Final Four, facing off against the Goliath of Gonzaga. Game goes into overtime. Game goes back and forth all throughout the first 40 minutes of the contest. I mean, UCLA would grab a lead, Gonzaga would give it right back, then UCLA would charge back. I mean, it was just back and forth, and game goes into overtime. With three seconds left, Johnny Juzang, transfer from Kentucky, didn't get a lot of PT in the SEC, hits a layup, or gets his own rebound, hits a lay-in for 3.3 seconds left, ties the game at 90. And you're sitting there thinking, I told my dad we were up late watching it, and he had to go to work the next day, or else he was supposed to, he got called off. And he, I said, hey, I said, if this game goes to double overtime, I'll go upstairs and watch it. The way you don't have to stay up late. He goes, no, he said, it's okay. They're about to inbound the ball. So he throws it into uh, Jalen Suggs. Takes the ball, four dribbles up the floor, maybe right after he steps over the logo. 
and drains one of the most memorable shots, buzzer beaters, we've ever seen in college basketball off the glass, and Gonzaga wins at 93-90 to in overtime. I mean, I think it is the greatest Final Four game of all time. It's up there. It the really shot is. is only number two because Christian Jenkins Christian was for the national championship. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I won't yeah. say Leitner. Leitner's, Leitner's was memorable, but I forgot about Christian Jenkins. That was a great shot. See, too. and I think I had to rank those one, two, and three in the order of importance. Jenkins was national number one championship. national championship, final four, and then elite eight. I think it's that simple. No, yeah, and I agree. I mean, Christian Jenkins definitely that's that's a little more memorable than this shot. But regardless, the way this game went. It was a very memorable shot. I mean, Gonzaga had been tearing through the field, and they finally meet somebody that's pushing them to the limit. I mean, you look at UCLA, Johnny Juzang had 29, 6 points. I mean, you look at Jaquez Jr. had 19 points. Riley had 14. Riley was somebody who, in the paint, he grabbed 10 rebounds too. He was a force to be reckoned with, and he was giving Timmy a hard time underneath. UCLA really played the perfect game, and as you said, Mick Cronin had the perfect game plan. Yeah, I called it. Because, listen, they were up on them throughout the entire first half. Gonzaga came back, took the lead on the final shot of the first half, and they just they continued it in the second half. In my mind, I thought, okay, Gonzaga's going to pull away in the second half, but they never did. Well, in UCLA, they took good shots. And I said that last week was, I think Cronin's going to have a great game plan. And I also said I thought one of these Final Four games would be closer than we thought. I thought it was going to be Baylor and Houston. Ended up being this game. Then you look at Gonzaga. Timmy had an insane game as well. He had four fouls. I believe it was about five minutes left in regulation. Did not foul out. Finished with 25 points. Only had four rebounds. Like I said, Riley gave him a hard time underneath. Then you have Jalen Suggs, obviously the star of the game. He had 16 points with six assists. And they only brought in two guys off the bench. So UCLA really <coughs> excuse me, UCLA really hit their shots. I think that was the difference maker within the game. Well, yeah, and Juzang, he, was, he had 29 points off of that game against Alabama where he fouled out. You know he wanted it to bounce back because he probably felt help because he found out like three minutes left in that Alabama right. game. So he probably felt helpless those last three minutes when Alabama's coming back and then in overtime, obviously they didn't need him because they won by ten. But still one of those things where you don't want to be sitting on the bench during your team's biggest game of the season up to that point. So he came out and he came out firing and he almost extended the game for UCLA, right. but as you said, that Jalen Suggs shot. Goodness gracious. I mean, that just, we've already said it, but we cannot reiterate it enough as the fact that's going to be a shot that we we tell our grandkids about. I mean, you're going to see it in tournament promos for the next 50 years. I mean, it wasn't one shining moment. It's just like the the uh, the Leitner shot. We still see that today. That was 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, these two Final Four games lead up to the National Championship game, the game that we deserve after such a crappy year of 2020. Gonzaga and Baylor, they were supposed to meet previously, and I completely forgot about that, but COVID changed those plans. Um, but the two best teams in college basketball all year, the only undefeated team versus a two-loss Baylor, who people were arguing could have been the number one team all year, too. And I would, I told Jacob and some buddies this in a group chat before the game started, was just, I had this feeling that it just was not going to be as close of a game as it should be. I thought it would be the other way, though. Yeah, but... It's just sometimes you have those feelings about games that are so anticipated and are supposed to be so close to competition, and then they become dull because one team kind of starts blowing the other out. Right. It was a great game to watch from Baylor's perspective. Baylor ended up winning this game 86-70, to but uh, I was just hoping for a little bit more of a competitive game. No, absolutely, because these were clearly the two best teams in college basketball. You can say that either of these teams are one of the best teams to ever play because of what we've seen throughout the year and what we saw in the tournament. And 
both teams have plenty of NBA talent. Both teams have older guys. It's not a bunch of one and duns. You know, there, there will be some one and duns among these among these players, Jalen Suggs being one of them. But you still just love to see teams like this go out and compete. And you hate whenever it ends like this because Baylor came out firing. One of I think eleven to nothing, maybe nine to nothing. I mean they they were up by like double digits from the get go and just never looked back. And that was the whole thing. Whenever Gonzaga finally cut it to single digits, Baylor answered back with their own run. Now, if Gonzaga can control that early hot streak from Baylor to kick the game off in the first five or six minutes, absolutely this game comes down to the wire. I mean, those first four or five minutes out on the floor made the difference for the rest of the game. It set the tone, it set the tempo, and Baylor grabs an early lead. And like you said, Gonzaga makes it to single digits or close to it, and Baylor just continues to grow their lead. So I think another big thing was also Baylor's defense was something that people were saying, the, and we said this on the show, I believe, was the matchup for this game would be Baylor's defense versus a nine, over 90 points per game at offense, and one of them had to give. And it was Gonzaga's offense. For sure, and... I think something else to look at is the turnover total. They had 14 turnovers, and this is the final statistics. They averaged 12.1 per game, so they probably averaged closer to 11 before this game. And I think that's really what messed up the tempo and the pace for Gonzaga. They like to run. Baylor can run too, but I think they knew to win this game, the best way to do it was to take smart shots. And I say I say this as the game was a fast pace, 86 to 70. That's a lot of points and it's because of the tempo of the game. But Gonzaga was never able to get in the flow. Well, and one thing about Gonzaga is the fact that you have Ayayi, who I believe had 22 in the Final Four game. He only has eight points. And then you have Nimhard, who was also contributing in the Final Four game. He only has nine points. Also four fouls. And four fouls. Timmy has 12 points and has four fouls. Timmy also created five turnovers, one of the more consistent players on the team. And he doesn't show up. Kispert as well was also in the running for the John Wooden Award earlier this year. He only has 12 points. He goes two, for, two of seven from the three-point line. So, I mean, it's just not the same Gonzaga offense, but it's because of how strong and athletic Baylor's defense was. And I think another factor was the fact that Suggs had those two fouls very early on, first 10 minutes of the first half. He didn't play from, I don't even remember, probably about the 14-minute mark until the very end of the first half. And then you bring in the backup point guard, Aaron Cook. He plays 10 minutes and turns the ball over three times. Yeah. That was kind of part of the reason Gonzaga was able to cut into the deficit as much during the first half. And if they had done that, they might have had a better chance, especially at the end of the game when Baylor got into foul trouble. Flo Thama fouled out. You had, uh, can't say his name, Tacho, whatever, had four fouls. And those are the two big men where if they're fouled out and in foul trouble, and Vital had three. You let Timmy and Kispert, yeah, you let Timmy and Kispert go to work, and they can cut into that lead very well, and you never know. It might be a different ball game. Jared Butler finishes, I believe, as the most outstanding player. Good. Had 22 points in the championship with seven assists. Teague also falls behind him with 19 points and two rebounds, and then Auburn transfer Davion Mitchell finished with 15 points, five assists, and six rebounds, and his defense really made all the difference, I believe, also in the first half, more in particular. Absolutely, and Mitchell, he has helped that draft stock a oh, that's lot. A, he declared. He's signing an agent. He's going to make a bag. Lottery pick. That segment was dedicated to Luke. Rest in peace, Luke. Gone from us too soon. But Jacob Hillman and I are going to move on to the next segment on the scoreboard. Weagle 9 1.1 FM. Don't go anywhere. This is the scoreboard. 
Thank you for tuning into the scoreboard with Bay Marks and Jacob Hillman. You can find the scoreboard podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you find your podcasts. Welcome back into the scoreboard here on Weagle 91.1 FM or WeagleFM.com. You're listening to the scoreboard. Jacob Hillman alongside Bay Marks just finished talking about the Final Four, wrapping up the college basketball season along with a tribute to Alabama superfan Luke Ratliff, who we lost this past week. It's time to move on to the NBA because last night was a huge night in the association as Brooklyn got back Kevin Durant. We saw a big matchup between the one and two seeds currently in the West. But we'll lead off with the return of Kevin Durant as the Nets defeat the Pelicans 139-111. to Kevin Durant came off the bench and he was perfect. Literally. Didn't miss a shot. Five for five, scoring 17 points. Plus minus of 20, plus 22 when he was on the floor. Well, everybody in their starting lineup yeah. had a plus of either 20, 20 and more besides Brown. But, yeah. It, it, was, it was a great return for him, and he didn't miss a beat. Well, and that just kind of goes to show how important KD is to this team. I mean, we were talking about it in the break, more specifically the Lakers, and the fact that when it comes down to playoff time and it's Brooklyn and the Lakers meeting in the finals, which I'm sure we both already predicting that, um, KD is going to be a vital role to that. And not only that, but I don't even think we mentioned this with the um, trade deadline lately, the fact that LaMarcus Aldridge is now in the Nets, who dropped 22 last night and also had three rebounds to go along with it. So, I mean, see, wh- see super the team. They're not, they don't even have DeAndre Jordan right now either. Yeah, and they have Blake Griffin now, still have Kyrie, still have James Harden. So My whole takeaway from it is – the Nets, whether they have one, two, or three of those big three players, they're going to be playing well. Now, obviously, I think you need at least two of them to be winning the NBA Finals. I don't think just one of them with the rest of the the makeup of the team is going to get it done. Because here's the thing. Blake Griffin, he's old. LaMarcus Aldridge, he's on the come down. DeAndre Jordan, same way. But if you have any combination of KD, Kyrie, and James Harden, I should say, hey, they didn't even have James Harden last night. Yeah, I was about to say. But they still had a one thirty nine. Yeah, it's nuts. But that's what it, that's that's my whole point is they only had two of them last night, and one of them came off the bench, and they won by thirty points almost. Look out for this Brooklyn team. I know. I think I was doubting them earlier this year. My doubt is starting to really yeah. recess. after they signed Blake Griffin and got with Marcus Aldridge. I mean, and I kind of hate it because. Everybody hates a super team. I'm going to be honest. And if you yeah. say you don't, then you're lying. This is going to be very toxic and not good for the NBA. Yeah, and, and we're going to, and after we talk about the big matchup in the West, we're going to talk about kind of the standings and who threatens the Lakers and who threatens the Nets. And we'll talk about it in a few minutes. And it's just one of those things where we, it, it, it sucks that we're having that conversation where it's just so obvious because of how good these teams are. There's no parity. Well, it sucks because we're looking at box scores and looking at scores of teams scoring 139 like Brooklyn, Indian, uh, the Indiana Pacers scoring over 140 points, the Wizards, who are one of the worst teams in the NBA, scoring 131. So, I mean, I don't know. I just kind of hate it right now. But another game last night between the Jazz and Suns, pretty important. What a fun game that was. It was a fun game. Uh, Chris Paul draining the clutch three. I mean, he finished with 29, four rebounds and nine assists. Donovan Mitchell, I mean, the face of Utah, drops 41 points and eight rebounds. I mean, 
It was a fun game. Devin Booker had 35 points and didn't make a three. <laughs> what? <laughs> Devin Booker's and, the most underappreciated man in and, NBA. And it's not like he had 23 free throws. He only had nine. I say only nine, but that's not like a James Harden type stat no, line. Yeah. This is a solid. He was making the mid ranges. He was getting to the basket, and I mean, he just did a good job. He only he was plus zero when he was on the floor, but still. I thought Booker had a great game. I think it's funny that Michael Bridges just didn't score. Said, nah, I'm leave it up to y'all tonight. Yeah, I'll, I'll grab Overtime my... game? Nah. I'll grab my three re- rebounds and f- have five fouls and shoot one du- one time. But uh, the Utah Jazz, like I are mentioning, uh, with Donovan Mitchell still first in the West, and the reason why it was so big is because the Suns are right behind them, uh, second place in the West right now. So that game was pretty big. I mean, I think potentially... I wouldn't throw these two teams out the window of meeting in the Western Conference semis or even the finals. No, not at all, because we'll see how the standings shake out and where they are kind of would be destined to meet. But you're right. I think that these two teams are, they might not be the best two teams in the West, but this isn't some super fluky thing where, oh, they're the top two seeds just because of all the injuries. These are great teams. They are. And now what I'll say is, I, would, I don't know who, I don't know what podcast it was. But they titled one of their their latest episode "Never Trust the Utah Jazz." Right, and I think that's kind of where I'm at. It's like, okay, they're a great regular season team, but if you pick them to go to the finals or anything, in once the playoff time comes, I think you're a little crazy. Yeah, I mean, I just I could see the meeting in the semis. These two teams, the Jazz and the Suns, but like you said, I wouldn't put all my money in them. I mean. I don't know. But like you said, a, a big thing also is just the fact that the West in particular has a lot of injuries right now pointing towards the Lakers. And we said in the break, once LeBron and AD come back, which we're supposing is going to be soon, it's it's going to be the Lakers and whoever else falls behind them. Well, as I said, we're going to look at the standings. And we're, we're going to start off in the West since we, we're talking about the top two seeds playing there. First in the West is still the Jazz. They are a game and a half in front of the Suns, who are – Three games ahead of the LA Clippers in the three spot, so it's it, it's something that what what we talked about in the break was okay. Does it really matter where these teams are seated? Because do you expect the Nuggets to beat? The, so if the season ended today, the Nuggets and the Lakers would be playing. Now, of course, you have to play in games with the with the uh, seven and eight seeds. So seven through ten seeds play for those seven and eight spots. But if the Nuggets will be playing the Lakers. I mean, what are the odds the Nuggets win a seven-game series against the Lakers? It's not high. No, it's not. I think it's zero. Yeah. And then the Lakers would go on to play the one seed of the Jazz. And as I just said, never trust the Utah Jazz. No, I mean, we saw what happened last year with them in Denver in the playoffs. Exactly. I mean, I don't know. And, and there's an article written on ESPN Plus, NBA West contender t- uh, tears, biggest threats to the Lakers written by Kurt Goldsberry on ESPN Plus, and you know, the favorites are the Lakers, and then it goes to Tier 2 immediately. Yeah. The legit threats. And it's not even the top two seeds that are number one. It's the LA Clippers at plus 300 odds, and then you get the Jazz, and then you move to Tier 3 already. Outside threats. So we're already talking about how only two teams can beat the Lakers. And you know what? I believe it. Right. I mean, but, and you also look at the fact, it like I said, right now it's just the fact that you have AD and LeBron out. With If they were both healthy, they'd be pushing for that one spot. And I'll give Utah credit. They've been towards the top of the West the whole year. 
But like Jacob keeps saying, when it comes down to playoff time, that's not going to be a team that you're going to put all your chips in for. You're going to be putting your chips in on either the L.A. teams and then maybe them or maybe the Denver Nuggets. I mean, yeah, the, the outside threats he considers are the Nuggets and the Suns, and which I agree yeah, with that. I agree. I think that, you know, if something crazy were to happen, then yes, maybe they could get they could get the Lakers and I won't doubt Chris Paul with that young core right. that they have there. That's not a team you'll doubt. Because Aiden and Booker are both very solid this year. They are. Now, with that being said, his, the, the long shots, Mavericks, Trailblazers, Warriors. Unless Steph Curry is scoring 50-plus points a game. Which lately if, he's scoring like 30 or 40. And even if he does that, I don't know if they can beat the Lakers in a seven-game series. Yeah. So. That's what I look at out west. And then in the east, who is beating the Nets? When James Harden, KD, and Kyrie are all on the floor healthy, nobody in a seven-game series. Even if just two of them are. I don't think anyone beats them in a seven-game Well, yeah, just because they also, like I said, they now have Blake Griffin, they now have Marcus Aldridge, and they still have role players like Harris and whatnot. I mean, Jordan will be back. DeAndre Jordan, yeah. So, I hate super teams. But (laughs) the only other teams I could see beating them would be I think like the same tier list you're saying is like like legit contenders in the East would be Philadelphia or Milwaukee. Right. Outside of that, you don't really see anybody else. It drops off so far with uh, the Hornets, but Lamella Ball is out for the year. Then you have the Hawks and the Heat who, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to take them seriously. The only team I would say that's just that's not the 76ers or Bucks, which is still crazy, but it's like, you know what? If we were going to see just a crazy upset, it's the Knicks. Because of their defense yeah. and because of Thibodeau, I could see them really giving them a fight. I'm going to argue either them or the Celtics. Yeah, Those are teams that shouldn't be as low as they are, but they are. I could see either of those teams well, I think making Knicks, that kind of upset. I think the Knicks are still trying to learn how to win. Yeah, It's one of those things where they have the talent, but... At least they're not in last place. you got to win those games, exactly. Yeah. It's almost Chumo Kiki's magic. Oh, goodness. But they're rebuilding. They'll they are. It, it, is, it is Chuma's magic, and... I guess a little Auburn update. Isaac Okoro. Yeah. How about that man? And I, th- I forget what the the range is, but in his last several games, he's averaging twelve point four points per game on seventy six percent shooting, and he hasn't missed a three. Yeah, and he's getting uh, comparisons from different NBA players, and Jimmy one of them Butler. being Jimmy Butler, who said that his ceiling is like super high, like his potential is just through the roof. Well, I think that's one of the, I going into the draft. I think that's kind of what we all thought was. Hey, listen. This guy has the physique. He's got the strength. He's got the athleticism. All he needs is a little bit of offensive game, and he's going to be one of the best rookies of this class. And, of course, he's not hes not flashy numbers, but that efficiency Impactness is, is going to be what propels him to be a star one day. Yeah, which in college, his three-point shot already wasn't amazing. I mean... Let's he, not discredit the Kentucky shot. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> but, I mean, that wasn't his strong suit of his game. It was defense. That's the only reason he got drafted so high, let's be honest. But And, and he was a really good slasher. Getting to the basket. Yes, and dunking. And Because here's the thing. It was funny. I was reading through replies to Cavs' Twitter post, and someone was talking about, okay, can Isaac stop catching and shooting threes? How about whenever he catches it, he steps back? Because I think he makes more of those than he yeah. does from catch and shoot threes. Yeah. It, it, I don't know, it's something because that Kentucky shot, that was awesome. it was a step back. Yeah, that was the dagger, too. So He's not afraid of the big moment. He's going to have a good rest of the season. NBA is starting to really heat up. We're going to see what happens coming down the closing stretch 
on the other side of this break. Auburn baseball, they got one at Arkansas, but the last two games, not what you want to see. They host Mississippi State this weekend. We're going to talk about both of those series on the scoreboard on Weagle 91.1 FM. We're already halfway done with the scoreboard on Weagle 91.1 FM. You can find more Weagle content at WeagleFM.com or on social media at Weagle underscore AU. This is the scoreboard, Weagle 91.1 FM. We're streaming on WeagleFM.com. I'm Bay Marks alongside Jacob Hillman. Halfway through today's program, if you want to call in for the second half, 334-844-9345 is the number you need to dial. 334-844-9345. That spells out Weagle. Second half of the program, all baseball. Spring has sprung. The weather outside is great. We're supposed to get bad it. weather today. Now, tomorrow and Saturday, get your ponchos because very high potential for bad weather. Um, my hope is that it all happens tomorrow. I don't think it will. But Saturday is a big day down at Auburn with the football scrimmage for students and faculty. So I don't think you're able to go if you're not a student or faculty. Baseball game, I mean, a lot of stuff going on. And if the game tomorrow gets rained out, could have a doubleheader Saturday. I, I was going to say, I don't know what to expect with the schedule. <laughs> Our last doubleheader wasn't great. Let's be honest. No. Got swept. No. But, like we mentioned, Auburn baseball is back on the plains this week after facing the number one team in America, the Arkansas Razorbacks. Auburn took game one on Thursday night against Arkansas. Won 2-1. to one. Cody Greenhill got the win for that game. Mesa Barnett got the save. And then Auburn turns back around, loses yet another one-run game on Saturday, 5-6. to six. Actually had the lead twice and lost it. Had a 4 nothing lead. A 4 nothing lead, yes. And then Auburn was up 5-4. to four, And then they lost 6-5. to five. And then, guess what? Another one-run loss on Saturday. With a 5 nothing blown lead. Yes, in extras. <laughs> Who would have thought? Auburn baseball continuing to lose close games. Um, it's... I'll let you start it off because I just don't know where to start with any of these games, really. I'll start off with the positives, and then we'll move into the negatives. And we all know what the negative is. But, I mean, the positives are Auburn is getting quality starts from Cody Greenhill, Jack Owen, and Joseph Gonzalez. Uh, Gonzalez, well, I'll start off with him. He, He started to fall apart at the end, but it wasn't some utter collapse. He did a great job. He went five innings, gave up two hits and two runs. He walked five guys. That's the one thing. That was that he, we walked too many people, and that's what gave them those runs in the starting rotation. When it comes to Cody and Jack, they pitched gems. Jack looked great in his first starting appearance back from injuring his hand. Yeah, and Cody, seven innings, three hits, and only gave up one run, had five strikeouts. That is what you're looking for. He walked zero batters. Jack Owen, as you said, pitched a gem in his first start back. He didn't go as far five innings in a third, gave up two hits, only one walk, and four strikeouts. That's what you're looking for. Here's the issue. So, when Cody Greenhill pitched, Carson Skipper piggybacked off him, pitched one inning, gave up one hit. Mason Barnett, one inning, gave up one walk, and got the save. Now we start to look at the losses and what the negatives are. It's a relief pitching. You went through a lot of guys on Friday night, the second game of the series, and and it was just one of those things where no one was comfortable. That that's what I saw. None of these guys came in and looked comfortable at all. And I and I really think that that was the biggest issue. Whenever these bullpen guys start to get comfortable, whether it's the injuries, whether who knows what it is, because obviously Richard Fitz, Carson Skipper, Hayden Mullins, all all, all dealing with injuries. Fitz with his foot. I'll give it to Carson. Skipper. Carson doesn't look terrible. Yeah. Skipper. So. I, yeah, he looked great on Thursday night, 
it was obviously the third game of the series where he came in, two innings, two hits, two runs. That's what I saw. Now, obviously, that could have been because he pitched twice in the weekend, and he's only three weeks off of an injury. Now, you put that up to coaching decisions. You could say Carson said he was ready when he wasn't. We don't know that inside info. But it's got to be consistent. That's the whole thing. And what we saw on Friday night was scary because that's not what's going to get Auburn to that close to 500 mark in the SEC that you need to be at to make the NCAA tournament. Because I think you can, you can make, you can probably get in the tournament 13 and 17. That's, that's very, very, very unlikely. But if you win one or two games in the SEC tournament, you have a chance. 14 and 16 is where you want to be. So, and Auburn's halfway there to, eight, to the losses. My thing is, like I said, biggest takeaway was starting rotation, in particular Jack being back, looks great. Gonzo in that Sunday, or not Sunday, technically it was Saturday, but he's in the third starting spot. He looks comfortable there, too, after having a shaky start against Kentucky the weekend prior. Auburn's starting rotation turned in a 1.56 ERA and a 127 batting average against Arkansas, being the number one team in the nation last weekend. So Auburn goes to number four Ole Miss, goes to number one Arkansas, and they're going to come back home and play number four Mississippi State. Three out of the last four SEC series have been against top four teams in the nation. And I'm going to be honest, it's it's looking a little daunting. But a positive, like I said with the pitching, is this weekend is only going to be the second time this year that Auburn has used the same starting rotation in back-to-back weeks. Yeah, that, see, and the only thing that changes with the bullpen is Hayden Mullins returns. Which and Auburn's a, bullpen needs that. And I think that's a huge positive because – he has been one of the better bullpen pitchers before he got injured. And because when I think of Hayden, I think of that UAB game that Joseph Gonzalez started. He was perfect through five. And then Hayden came in and closed it out for the last four innings. Yeah. I mean, having Hayden back is huge because when you get on social media, all you're going to see underneath an Auburn baseball post is where's the bullpen, fire hoodie, all this and Relief that. Is, pitching. Yeah. And I think that's – and here's the thing. You might not have to throw Carson that second time in Game Three if you have Hayden. Yeah, exactly. So that depth is really kind of key, especially when you're going through this grind of playing these top five teams week in and week out. I think you're being a little generous about thirteen and seven. Seventeen, or yeah, yeah, seventeen. Um, See, it's just it's, it's just such a daunting it's schedule, happened. though. I'm not saying I think Auburn will get there. I'm just saying that's where the target is. Yeah. Because it's completely uphill. Because teams have gotten into the tournament with that record. Yeah, it's completely uphill. Auburn's one and eight, so see, it's got to be a complete flip of script. See, you're right, and you say it's completely uphill, but but let's look at the rest of the series because you're right. What they have faced has been difficult. You really needed the Kentucky I mean, series. You needed that badly. They needed Kentucky. They lost two one run games, one in extra innings, and then lost a two run game. They faced Mississippi State this week. They're looking for their second straight home series win against the Bulldogs. Then they go to Bama next weekend. Bama also at the bottom of the totem pole in the SEC this year. Come back home after two tough midweek games against Sanford and Jacksonville State, two tough in-state opponents. They're going to face Florida, who, while they've been up and down this year, they also beat Ole Miss at their home state. What I'll say is Florida is the toughest other than Mississippi State remaining series on the schedule. Oh, I'll agree. Yeah. Because look at those last four series. Well, you those have, are all gettable. You have Florida, but then you're going to take the midweek off. You go to Athens, host LSU. Host AM, who you've already beaten once this year, that'll be a confidence booster. But then you go to Missouri. Missouri's awful. Yeah. 
So, the, listen, that series at the end, if Auburn is 10 and 17 or 11 and 16, but he is 14 and 16, is that safe number? You're in as long as you get one SEC tournament game. But if they are at that, if they have 16 or 17 losses going into that series in the SEC, goodness gracious, you are absolutely dying. Because we're really for a sweep. We're we're now really at the midpoint of the season. Yes, I mean this. This is the this is the middle of the season. Yeah, you turn it around now or not? Tech, yeah, technically there's still a lot of season left. You still have more than there's half plenty of, of season SEC left. Yeah, series. yeah. But it just feels like it's like all right. If it doesn't turn around now, you have a month and a half to figure yeah. it out. I mean, big key right now also is consistent offense and healthiness in the bullpen. And Richard Pitts, obviously, I'm going to consider him in the bullpen. We saw Richard within those first few games this year. Yeah, he got he got hit up by Baylor. He looked great against Presbyterian. You could tell in Little Rock or not Little Rock, Fable, sorry. He did not look comfortable. No. I mean Richard's just I was I mean, that's what I would say about the entire bullpen, specifically on that Friday night. Yeah. Trace came in, he gave up three runs. Richard came in, only recorded one out. Brooks came in, didn't record an out. Swilling came in. God, Brooks looked I, I thought Swilling looked the best, and he, did, he came in and he did, and he recorded the loss, which stinks. And you mentioned Brooks Fuller. I mean, Brooks's body language was just like defeated. And of course, you know, may I don't think this is too much of a factor, but I think it plays some of a factor. That was only their second time playing in front of the full stadium. Arkansas, their their COVID restrictions are starting to lift, so they had a packed stadium. Yeah, and Arkansas obviously has one of the best atmospheres in college baseball. Ole Miss, they, they had experienced it at Ole Miss, but Side note, still, hopefully Plainsman might look similar. I was going to say, Alabama, the state of Alabama lifts its mask mandate tomorrow at 5 o'clock, so who knows? That who might knows? also include attendance restrictions. We'll see what there is. Does. There are new – I'll mention this real quick because it applies to Auburn baseball. They did send an email out today from the university that does say um, masks are encouraged outside on campus. They're not required. Indoors, they're still required, but at – Athletic events, per se, baseball, since it's outside. Masks are required in common areas such as concession, uh, bathroom, and walking on the concourse. But sitting at your seat, it's not required. It's right. just encouraged. So Auburn might be moving towards which a full stadium can attendance. a full stadium can flip the script easy. It can absolutely. I mean, even going from twenty percent to fifty percent, I think it could. Oh, absolutely, because there's there's fans dying to get into Auburn baseball games. I mean, you see the you see the parking deck every week, and the team sees that. You saw the first few games this year when there was a lot of people in the stadium as much as possible, um, what the players were saying about it and how much they liked it. When you have a full stadium like that, opposing teams are not comfortable playing in a stadium like that, especially right. coming out of COVID. Right. So, Well, I say looking ahead at this series, get two out of three. That's a daunting task. That's a huge but task. Here's the thing. I, I trust the starting rotation. Oh, I do too. To come out and get at least – Five innings of great, and especially work. if Hayden Mullins is coming back and Skipper truly is healthy enough to pitch, which he looked like in Thursday's game. I believe was when he pitched. He pitched Thursday and Saturday. Yeah, and Saturday. Um, I trust Auburn to get two out of three, but I won't set my expectations that high. I say Auburn gets one, and I think it's Saturday with Jack Owen on the mound. Yeah, I I agree with that. I don't think it'll happen Friday or Friday night. I say Friday night. We don't know what the schedule is going to be like, so I think that's another factor we have to factor in because. We might end up having to play two seven-inning games on Sunday. Yeah, and that being the weather. Weather's going to be bad once again, which sucks. But I think that would favor Auburn. It might. I mean, you never know. Because 
as I said, you get five innings from your two starters in those seven inning games. That's only two innings of relief work you got to ask for. Because Cody's going to go seven innings as long as he pitches like he has been. My expectations aren't going to be as high as I agree. two out of three. I agree. Auburn gets we'll one game this one. weekend, and next week at Alabama is the most important series of the year. After the break, the final segment of today's show, Jacob Hillman and myself, Bay Marks, we're going to talk a little bit of MLB opening weekend this past week and our teams. How are they faring in the MLB? We'll be back after this short break on Weagle 91.1 FM. One more segment before we turn off the scoreboard for the day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Scoreboard with Bay Marks and Jacob Hillman. You can listen to us live every Thursday at 4 p.m. on WEGL 91.1 FM or at WEGLFM.com. Welcome back into The Scoreboard on Weagle 91.1 FM or streaming at WeagleFM.com. Jacob Hillman sitting alongside Bay Marks. If you missed any part of the show today, go back and listen after we upload the podcast to Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. As today's Masters Thursday live update from Augusta National. Early leader is Justin Rose. He's six under through 16. Three shots ahead of Brian Harmon, Hideki Matsuyama. So we'll see how the Masters back in April plays out over the weekend. But this segment is all about Major League Baseball and opening weekend. And did not go well for either of our teams. Let's just, well, I'm on a three-game win streak. So <laughs> that, that I'm is sitting true. at 500. That is true. I'd say I, I figured I thought it would be going the other way around. Well, well, at first we, I mean, we were zero and three, and I mean, yeah, that's the whole thing. I thought you know, three and zero against the Orioles, then lose three in a row to the, the Orioles, Rays. who are four and two in the top of the AL East. Goodness, and we're playing right now against the Orioles again. We are in Camden Yards, or uh, we are playing in Baltimore. Um, we're up seven to three in the middle of the eighth, so we might be, we might be on to hey, something right now. Red Sox back? Uh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> We'll be back when we're healthy. But my thing is, big biggest takeaways, especially today. We'll even look at today because, I mean, this counts also. Verdugo, 2 of 5 today, has scored two runs. J.D. Martinez batting in the DH spot, 2 for 4. Rafael Devers, 2 of 3 for today. Christian Vasquez, 3 for 4. I mean, those guys, along with the Xander Bogarts, we knew coming into the season we are going to be the leaders of this ball club. And they're playing like it right now. Eduardo Rodriguez was a guy that Alex Cora spoke very highly of, and he pitched five innings today, gave up four hits, three runs, didn't walk anybody, and had seven Ks. So he had a solid performance against the top team in the AL East. Again, this is that time of year. It's We're just past opening weekend. We're only single digits into the season for game-wise. I mean, not too much to read into the season so far, especially for my Red Sox, but... Give us a few weeks, and I'll be able to give you a measuring stick of where we're at. Yeah, and I don't feel like that pitching was as bad as it could have been. No. It, it it wasn't great, but it could have been worse. Yeah, I mean, that's my thought. I was going into the season, I was like, oh, Lord. Red Sox pitching, yikes. That game three against Baltimore, not good. Not good from Richards. Six earned runs in two innings. Yeah, no. But the first two games, pain. I think that was more offensive. When I shift my focus to my Braves. Hey, you can't go... 158 and 4. 58 and 4 if, if you, you don't, don't start, start out 0 and 4. Yeah. You can, but we're. Yes, <laughs> I won't correct you. The thing is, the Phillies pitchers looked great. They did. Aaron Nola. And then he had Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler, I think he had double. I mean, Atlanta and, scores three runs in three games. Zach Wheeler's retired 23 straight batters. <laughs> 
Is that good? That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like I said. So this is just the first. This is the lead in the in the recap from the AP. Hey. Zach Wheeler allowed only one hit and struck out ten over seven innings and had two hits and two RBIs at the plate. To connect this back to our last segment, Atlanta's doing the best Auburn impressions, losing losing several one run games. Man, yeah. And here's the thing: the offense isn't terrible. Like I said, it's just the freaking pitching for Phillies was insane over the weekend. Now, fortunately, when they went to Washington, things looked a little better. Ronald Acuna had two home runs in the game one against against the Nationals against Zach uh, Max Serger because they had COVID issues and couldn't play opening weekend against the Mets. But that didn't stop the Nationals from coming back and beating the Braves because Will Smith blew the one-run lead or the, the tie game in the ninth inning. I was in complete disaster mode. But then they got the doubleheader sweep yesterday, which... I mean, and it's calmed me a little bit, a little bit. I'm very much less confident about the Braves having a chance at this division. Yeah, just because of obviously the Phillies and then the Mets. Who, if you haven't seen the end of the Mets game today, like you've got to go look that up. That was very. <laughs> we were watching that before the show started today, and uh, that was just crazy in itself. But no, I mean, and my advice is don't get discouraged right now too. I mean, it's just it's like early, it's a long season, way long too season. early. Yeah. You can't go 158 and 4 without starting 0 and 4. I mean, we're on track to go 159 and 3. We've won three straight games. Only have 156 straight to go. Yeah. And one other thing I look at is our leading RBI leader. Take a guess who it is. There's two guys. They're tied for first. It's Austin Riley, one of them? One is very obvious. Acuna. Yes. Who's the other? I was going to say Austin Riley, but I don't think it's Austin Riley. No. It's not Freddie Freeman. No. Which you would think it would be him, too. I don't know. <laughs> Pinch hitter Pablo Sandoval. Oh, yeah, Panda. Who has hit the two. Former he, Boston Red Sox. He hit the winning home run in game two yesterday, and he hit the go-ahead home run, I think, in game one against the Phillies. I forget. One of the games he hit a home run against the Phillies, and it was a big deal. Is that, is that like the Spotify link to Panda by designer? Yes, exactly. See, we didn't have that same energy when he was in a Red Sox uniform. No, he but. No, he, he's up there in age, but hey, he's performing off the bench for the Braves. But the discouraging thing is something like Ozzy Alves going 0 for 18 to start the season, something like that. But he's gotten two hits in his last few ABs, so that's a good thing. But I just kind of want to see some consistency on the lineup because it is not pretty. I think, uh, and you know more about it than I do, it's just the fact that, because let, let, me, let me go down the lineup. Ronald Acuna hitting 304. That's fine. He's got two home runs, four RBIs. It's actually great. He's yeah. He has two stolen bases. He's looking up at that 40-40, and I think he's on a very good pace for that. Batting second, Ozzy Always, 091. Batting third, Freddie Freeman, 111. He's also getting waltz a lot, so that's a good thing. Well, he also got run up rung up yesterday on a terrible call. He did. Marcelo Zuna batting fourth, hitting 100. Batting fifth, Travis Darno, hitting 200. Batting sixth, Dansby Swanson, 143. Batting seventh, Austin Riley, one eleven, and Christian Pache, one. He's hitting uh, one twenty five. Yeah, not ideal. That's a lot of ones. You'd rather in the wrong spot. You'd rather have a lot of people batting like Ronald than they are. I was gonna say, and, and here's the thing: three or four. That's a lot. That's really good. No, no one, anything no one has, over two seventy five is great. Exactly, and just get to two twenty five for goodness' sake. The home, the first home stand of the year for the Braves. Yeah, but I say the Braves upcoming. haven't even played at home yet, so. And they 
will be facing off against, I believe, it'll be the Phillies. So they face the Phillies again. You get another chance at Zach Wheeler on Friday night. I don't, I don't have a a great feeling about that. But Charlie Morton, I have, I have faith in him. But it's more about Wheeler. I hope that the Braves can hit him this time, seeing him for another time. This is kind of off topic. Back to the Freeman strikeout yesterday that we were watching. That was... Hey, listen. Uh, kind of hurts me. When, and I'm not even an Atlanta fan. When Freddie Freeman argues, it's an issue. No, it's more of the Freddie Freeman stare down. True. More than anything. But my team update with one out in the bottom of the eighth, still up seven to three. Maybe we can hold that lead. <laughs> we'll give a better measuring stick when the Who season's knows? farther underway. Well, as long as Auburn baseball can hold a lead this weekend, that's all that matters. Auburn baseball does host number four Mississippi State this weekend on the Plains. March Madness is over, but the Masters has only begun. Justin Rose leads at 6-under through 16. Three-stroke lead over Brian Harmon and Hideki Matsuyama. You could argue it's the best time of the year. I think it's safe to say, especially for Jim Nance. Yes. God, I love Jim Nance. I wonder if he just got on his private jet from Indianapolis and flew to Augusta. <laughs> Direct flight. I love Jim Nance. What a voice. What a guy. Bay Marks to Jacob Hillman. That's the scoreboard for today. Join us next week. Back on the scoreboard, Wheel 91.1 FM. Catch the recording on any podcasting platform that you choose. We'll be back next week. This has been the scoreboard on 91.1 FM WEGL with Bay Marks and Jacob Hillman. Join us every Thursday at 4 as Jacob and Bay cover all the happenings in sports. You can keep up with all the great shows on Weagle by streaming us on our website at WEGLFM.com and following us on Twitter and Instagram at WEGL underscore AU.